Thank you, Andrew, and thank you, Jen. You guys make a bit of a tough act to follow up, but uh, we'll see what we can do. <laughs> uh, as mentioned, uh, for those of you who might not know me, my name is Michael, and I regularly lead our youth ministry here at the church. And this morning is kind of fun. We get to do a bit of a, like a role reversal. Often I'll you know, have a spot opening the service, hosting, praying, that kind of thing. And, and obviously Andrew will take the stage at this point, but... Uh, it's fun. It's exciting that we get to switch it up every now and then. So I'm looking forward to this. I, I love my role with the youth, and I love how uh, it can regularly bring us into a very unique opportunities. Uh, a couple of years back, we were, I was leading a, uh, one of our youth missions trips to Winnipeg, of all places. And we were, we were set out to lead a week of camp for teenagers who had mental disabilities, kind of Down syndrome or autism, kind of creating uh, the largest of the group dynamics there. And what really stuck with me over the years was that in our training time leading up to this camp was the camp director, someone who regularly worked in such environments, uh, really broke down the sense of us and them. This idea that we have something to offer and they have something to learn. We are here to lead, they are here to receive. We are one way, they are another way. There is no us and them, because truly we are all here together for the same purpose, growing in our love and understanding of who Jesus is. It was a really beautiful experience of, of our team getting <laughs> partnered up one-on-one -on -one with people their own age, walking through each day together, learning and laughing alike. And we saw such great growth in this week. But this principle of us versus them has stuck out to me, and not just in that isolated circumstance, but something that I've been working on applying. Where, where have I been falling into this notion uh, in other areas as well? This idea of us versus them brings us to our passage in the book of Mark this morning. We're continuing on in our series. Mark chapter 9 is where we are at today. We're going to be reading verses 38 to 50. And, and, and we see that the disciples have also been getting stuck in an us versus them mentality. Now you can turn there now, and it'll be up on the screens shortly. But just a, a brief summary. In the past couple of weeks, we have seen Jesus take his disciples up on this mountaintop experience where Jesus was transfigured. He came back down from the mountain where they faced an argumentative crowd and, and this difficult deliverance situation. After this, Jesus teaches his disciples about his coming death, which they don't really understand, nor do they really engage in that conversation. Instead, an argument stirs about, hey, which one of us disciples is really the greatest? Jesus then teaches them about true greatness in the kingdom is one of service. And that leads us again to our text this morning. We're going to read verses 38 to 41 for now, and we'll come back to the second half of the passage in a few moments. Verse 38. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Well, do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. Let's pause and pray together and then 
uh, we'll continue on exploring this passage. Jesus, we pray that you would bring us clarity and understanding as we read and explore your word that you have given us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. So here we are again in familiar territory of the book of Mark, and it's familiar because we've once again come up to a, a deliverance situation, a casting out of demons, casting out of evil spirits, which we've actually seen quite often in the book of Mark up to this point. It's also familiar because, unfortunately, we once again see a shortfalling of the disciples. Uh, this phrase, we told him to stop because he was not one of us. You know, it's, it's kind of difficult to know how much time has passed from, from this deliverance situation to this bottom of the mountain deliverance experience that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Uh, likely, it seems it's only a couple of days. And that, that this idea, this teaching, these experiences were all very fresh on their minds as we go through our passage today, um, where previously uh, the disciples or, or anyone else in the crowd, in that fact, weren't able to uh, cast out an evil spirit but we're looking at another new situation. The disciples haven't clued into things yet, but it seems pretty clear that other people who have been seeing and learning from Jesus have. Our text tells us that the disciples saw someone driving out demons, seemingly successful. They were doing it, and it seems like they were probably even doing it multiple times. This person must have truly believed. And I think the big focal point in this new situation that the disciples um, have encountered is their motivation behind their actions. They told this person to stop because he is not one of them. The bottom of the mountain deliverance was focused on method. How? How are we supposed to cast out demons? How is this supposed to happen? This circumstance we're looking at today is focused on, on the question of who. Who is able to participate in such an act, in such a ministry. I think John clearly felt a sense of privilege being one of the disciples. And I mean, we'll give him some credit. That is pretty cool to be one of the 12. But it doesn't mean that they had a monopoly of the ministry. Yes, those 12 disciples had a unique and valuable role to play, but they were not the only players allowed in the game. We can only imagine what would have been going through the disciples' head as they encounter this is, hey, is, is this guy going to make us look bad? How come he can do it, but we can't? Well, do you think Jesus might ask him to follow us as well? well? What if Jesus asked him to follow us instead of us? How, can, how come he can do this by the name of our teacher? Jesus isn't his teacher. Jesus is, is our teacher. And their fears and their insecurities took over. And the disciples go and they address this person and they get him to stop doing his work. And let's think for a moment. We're only working off of one verse here, but it's easy to pass by, but I think it requires us to dwell on it a little bit longer. There's a group gathered here, some of them being tormented, and then finally being set free. People are hearing the name of Jesus. They're recognizing this name of Jesus and understanding that there is power and there is authority in the name of of Jesus. These people must have truly believed in Jesus because, again, if we reflect on this bottom of the mountain experience from a couple weeks ago, the, the father of the son has this beautiful confession. He says, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. From the bottom of the mountain, 
there's this crowd that remembered Jesus was able, and they took it to heart. And I think what the disciples remembered from this bottom of the mountain experience was that they had failed, and that is how they were functioning. So in come the disciples, shutting it down, claiming this isn't the real deal, okay? Not just anyone can cast out demons, not just anyone can call on the name of Jesus, not just anyone can follow us. And those statements do not sit very well. Consider what this would have done to the faith of this new believer. How confused he would have been after this interaction. Witnessing the powerful work of Jesus is an incredible thing, but to be able to participate in it creates this undeniable encounter for us. We can imagine whoever this person was, he had seen Jesus at work, believed in him, and was now walking in step with him. But after the comments of the disciples, I saw Jesus doing it this way. I, I believed he was the one to save us and had authority, but maybe I was out of line. Maybe I got it wrong. Maybe this can't be for me. And this intolerance from the disciples tells a false story that God can only work through those whom we have first approved. And the story gets a little bit worse before it gets better. What would have possibly redeemed the situation? What would have made this toxicity just a little bit more tolerable is if the disciples had stayed, if they had continued caring for the people, if they had continued delivering people, if they had continued telling the truth about who Jesus was. But as far as we know, they didn't even do that. They stopped the man, they walk away. John goes up to Jesus and tells him of the good work that they had done and what else is going on out there. Us versus them. Jesus' response is really marvelous here and a true, <clears throat> excuse me, a true demonstration of his character. And I mean, I was kind of just getting like angry reading and writing about the faults and mistakes of the disciples, even after Jesus had taught them a better way, even after Jesus had shown them a better way, and they just weren't getting it. And Jesus had to live with these guys, yet he responds, do not stop them. That's it. I think we're kind of anticipating more. Like, come on, Jesus, like, let these guys have it. Do not stop them. It's a firm but not reactive statement. It's truthful, but it's not shameful. It's filled with grace and mercy for the people he cares about, but it, it doesn't let them off the hook either. And soon we'll, we'll see how Jesus further addresses this problem, but it's a genuine let your yes be yes and your no be no kind of answer. Do not stop him. So Jesus continues to explain, looking again at verse 39. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose the reward. And I think what should stand out in this piece of text here is the name of Jesus. Both John and now Jesus have, have uh, brought attention to this. John saying, Jesus, we saw someone delivering... Uh, in your name. And now Jesus again says, uh, and you are no one who does a miracle in my name. And I think this makes a crucial distinction for us. 
because uh, there are and there were other methods of deliverance being practiced at this time, apart from the person of Jesus. And we see later on uh, in the book of Acts that there's also an example of a group of Jews uh, who attempted delivering or casting out demons uh, simply by quoting the phrase in the name of Jesus, but they were ineffective because they didn't genuinely believe. They just thought, if we say the right words in the right orders, things will happen. But that's not how that works either. So if something of that was going on and John interjected, yeah, that would make sense. Bring them the truth and the authority of who Jesus is. But again, as we mentioned earlier, this person that John interrupted was successfully delivering people in the name of Jesus, and therefore he must have been doing something right. You know, it's good for us to be open to others and the work that they are doing, but that also doesn't mean we're relieved of the responsibility to discern spirits and motivations in which the people are working. And I think that's partially what Jesus means when he says, whoever is not against us is for us. This is kind of a curious phrase. Usually we, we flip it, um, and we see that in the Bible as well. But whoever is not against us is for us. This, this isn't a passive statement. It's not commending indifference towards Jesus, this attitude, well, if it's not that bad, then let's just count them as a number on our team kind of mentality. Rather, at this time, the ministry of Jesus was still very new. It was foreign, and it often received with hostility. And whether you were Jewish or whether you were Roman, uh, any, any act towards Jesus, any positive act towards Jesus was most likely a defiance of your traditions or a defiance against your state. There is no indifference with Jesus. You are towards or you are against. And it should have been easier for the disciples to pick up on that this guy is for us. He is on our side. He is in favor of the ministry of Jesus. So Jesus tells them, verse 41, truly I tell you, Anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name, because you belong to the Messiah, will certainly not lose their reward. Again, they're living in a world or in a time that's, that's still kind of hostile and foreign to Jesus. They're not saying that apathy is a positive thing. What they're saying is any positive action towards Jesus is a win. Because you have to go out of your way to make a positive interaction towards Jesus. Because people notice if you turn your attention towards Jesus. And I think we can even resonate and relate with that uh, in ourselves, in our current time, in our current culture, that if you turn your attention towards Jesus, you kind of stand out a little bit and people notice. But I think Jesus is also speaking times of, of greater hardship, of a greater hardship that is yet to come, where life following Jesus will become so hostile that even a glass of water is a significant act of service. And it didn't actually take that long before the disciples experienced uh, a hostility or a culture of that kind. And there's places in our world now where we can see it so intensely. Giving a glass of water is actually a pretty big deal. It's a, it's a risk. It's a sacrifice. It's a simple yet incredible act of service that says, keep going. I am with you. I will refresh you. Let the name of Jesus continue to spread. A cup of water is an act of service, and they will not lose their reward. Their reward being identified with the person of Jesus. Their reward also being greatness in the kingdom of heaven. As Jesus taught in just the previous text, 
the ones who will be great are the ones who serve. Investments towards the kingdom should never be refuted. A small investment produces a large return. And this man was about to have an exponential impact on the kingdom, casting out darkness, speaking boldly of the name of Jesus, but its impact was cut short. Jesus is also saying we need to recognize those who are helping us for, your, for, for their sake, absolutely. But not, not just for the other people, but, but for us as well. Because we need the help. The field, the need is great. Even the smallest act, like a glass of water, should be gladly received. All those who partner in, in any way in the name of Jesus They will not lose their reward. Their greatness is in heaven. It's not just for their sake. It's for ours as well. It's not us first them. It's just us. You know, there's an oddly similar story uh, in the book of Numbers of all places. Numbers chapter 11, we see this account. Joshua catches word that there's some men prophesying in the camp of Israel. So Joshua turns to Moses and and exclaims, like, hey, these unauthorized men need to stop. Sound familiar? But Moses responds, are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And if we read the precursor to this story, this prophecy that was happening was God-ordained because the work for Moses was too much. He was too burdened by the demands of the people, and the people needed more. So God uh, brought 70 of their elders together and he put his spirit upon them so that they may prophesy because the people needed more. Are you jealous for my sake? Are you jealous that they're doing what used to be only I could do? Are you jealous that what was once specialized is now becoming normalized? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. If we come back to our story in Mark, are the disciples jealous for Jesus? Are they jealous for themselves? Do they want to monopolize the ministry market, which would make them indispensable, highly revered? But Jesus wishes that all were casting out Satan in his name. How do you and I respond when we see someone else doing a job better than ourselves? Do we respond like John and try to shut it down? Or do we respond like Moses and say, let's have more of this happening? Uh, I'm, I'm going to share a brief real-life example to help make this uh, connect better, and then we're going to pause for a moment of contemplation, prayer, and consideration. Uh, many of you have probably seen that there's been this revival in Asbury going on. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, that's fine. You can still follow the train of thought. Uh, when I first kind of caught word of what was happening and things were popping up on my newsfeed as I was on Facebook or Instagram or whatever, my first reaction was skepticism. Is this real? Is this genuine? Is this actually happening? And, and the more that I saw it coming up, it's like, okay, there might be actually something happening. But my skepticism turned into cynicism. Probably won't last that long. Probably won't make much of a difference. It's probably too commercialized and so on. But then we started hearing more of there's little pockets around the world that are starting to pop up where we see God is at work and and these little revivals are happening. And finally, the shift happened 
for me, from skepticism and cynicism to hopefulness. God is at work. Let's celebrate that God is being put on display. He's doing it there. He can do it anywhere. And I hope he does it here as well. So let's pause for a moment. I'm going to bring us a couple of questions as we prayerfully consider, and and my hope is that Jesus would speak to each of us individually. Uh, I invite you to close your eyes if that helps you to focus or concentrate. Jesus, we invite you to speak to us, to lead us and teach us. Is there kingdom work that we are making more about ourselves than Jesus? Is there bitterness towards other believers, churches, or organizations because of what they are doing? Maybe because of what we are not doing. Are we lacking to engage ourselves? Are we more inclined to criticize others? Who is on the fringe of my circle that I need to invite in? And finally, where do I have an us versus them mentality? Jesus, we thank you for speaking to us and being gracious with us. Amen. This question, who? Who is able to participate in such a ministry? Anyone who believes in the name of Jesus and how much more valuable it is when we empower other people and bless others to carry forward the work of the kingdom. Now, ironically, we see the flip side of this happening in our passage where the followers of Jesus are putting a stop to other followers of Jesus. And I think this is why in the next passage that we look at, Jesus comes with such a hard-hitting warning for us. Verse 42. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. This is a very bold and impactful statement that Jesus is making. Now, of course, Jesus is using hyperbole here to emphasize his point. Uh, He's exaggerating a a physical reality to emphasize a spiritual truth. But Jesus doesn't exaggerate on our spiritual realities. Leading others to stumble, meaning causing them to sin. Jesus is wanting us to understand the severity of damaging the faith of a young person or a young believer. Those who give a cup of water in my name will be rewarded. Those who cause others to sin will face judgment. And what I think Jesus is getting at is he really meant it when he called his disciples to take up their cross and follow him. Uh, An instruction we see only a chapter earlier in the book of Mark. Let that judgment be dealt with at the cross. Lean into living in the steps of Jesus. 
It's referencing back to this call of discipleship that Jesus gave. I think it's uh, important for us to be able to quote this. Mark chapter 8, 34 to 37. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? And what might the disciples have been doing to cause others to stumble? Well, they're excluding other people. They're arguing about how to do ministry instead of actually caring for people. They had pride in their own greatness. We can say that God shows more concern for the little one's fragile faith than for the great one's fragile egos which cause it to lord it over others and ignore the real need in front of them. So the disciples evidently still had remnants of their old selves in them that needed to be dealt with. And the question of how, how are they supposed to deal with this? Well, Jesus continues to press this point further with some spiritual surgery, which is actually more like spiritual butchering. Verse 43, uh, down, to, <laughs> down to 48. If your hand causes you to stumble... Cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed with two hands than uh, maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die, and the fire is not quenched. Yikes. This is graphic, and I think we're kind of feeling like we're ready to move on from this right now. Jesus probably could just use like one example would have been sufficient, but he just kept going. This is the process that the disciples needed to go through. Jesus needed to emphasize his point, and because the disciples had to go through it, that means that you and I have to go through it as well. Again, this is a physical exaggeration to emphasize the spiritual reality. Although if you pause and consider, if we just take it at face value, it's still worth it, isn't it? Um, To be clear, Jesus is not asking us to physically mutilate ourselves. That is not the objective. That would be uh, quite unacceptable, actually. Please do not do that. Uh, Rather, this concept... Well, well, this, is, this was in the day where capital punishment was practiced. And at times, maiming someone was used as like a more gracious approach than executing them. Uh, to lose a limb was better than to die. Or maybe better than having a millstone tied around a neck. It's better to cut off your hand. The concept is being applied to the disciples' spiritual life. The point is this, we must desperately remove anything that pushes us or others away from eternal life or pushes us away from finding freedom in Jesus. It will likely require something of us, not a hand or not a foot, but maybe it means that we need to stop watching a certain TV show because it's desensitizing us. It's, it's causing us to glance over the severity of real-life situations, chalk them up to not a big deal. Maybe it means that we need to stop going on social media as much because it just causes anger against other people. Maybe it means we need to take a break from a certain group of people because we've recognized that their negative influence on us 
isn't, or is stronger than the positive influence we were hoping to have on them. Maybe it means we need to stop spending so much time alone because we know where our mind goes in those empty places and the temptation that comes in that. These are simple ideas, but ideas that cause us to pinpoint a stumbling block in our lives, ideas that cause us to make a decision to change. Wherever your hands, feet, or eyes are leading you into trouble, it's time to repent. Cut it off before it affects your whole body. And, and recall how Jesus responded to the disciples with gentleness, with grace, and with patience. And he will respond to you and I in the same way. Because we know that the effort to make these changes are worth it. In order to do this, it means we need to pay more attention to the sin in our own lives and assess how we are viewing the people down the street, across town, different country, around the world, and so on. We have the responsibility of examining ourselves, and we have the responsibility of encouraging one another. That is what we're called to do. The final statements in our text for today, verse 49 and 50, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? So have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Now, now passage has mentioned the fire of hell, and now it's mentioning that there's, there's another use, another purpose of fire. Fire to refine you. Fire to remove the impurities, to remove the sin, to remove the pride, to remove the exclusivity, the jealousy, and so on. Salt removes, or sorry, fire removes. Uh, salt is used for purification and preservation. It amplifies the good that is present. To be salted with fire means that the dominant aspect in our lives is the goodness that Jesus has taught us to live in. It's meant so that we can draw closer to Christ's likeness, that we can add value to the people around us, that we can encourage and empower the people around us. But if we lose our salt, it says, if we no longer show love to one another, well, what will others think of us? If we push each other away, how much value do we have in our world? And for more focused on criticism than empowerment, how is the church going to grow? If we lose our salt, it's difficult to get it back. Therefore, we're called to live at peace with one another because when it comes to the family of God, it's not us first them. It's just us. To wrap this up, the road to following Jesus is not a simple one. It requires us to look deeply within ourselves, continuously assessing what is causing us to sin or what is causing us to have a negative impact on others around us so that we can cut these parts off. What these parts look like, elevating ourselves over others, insecurities about the positive things going on around us, getting caught up in arguments instead of caring for people, neglecting to fill a need that's right in front of us, and the list can go on. Jesus gives us an abundance of grace as we go through this process. It's uncomfortable, and we don't always get it right the first time. We, we can recognize the faults of the disciples, and it's good for us to recognize our, our own faults. But how much more important it is to recognize 
how close Jesus remained with his disciples in the midst of these faults, how close Jesus is going to remain with us as we continue to work through our own faults. Jesus remained with them, with his 12 disciples. He guided them, and he brought them through this refining process so that they could bear salt, so that they could demonstrate the person of Jesus well, so that they could live at peace with one another. We are able to accomplish far more for the kingdom when we work together than when we're apart. And with Jesus as our focus, and with Jesus binding us together, we are able to make Jesus known. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for being gracious with us. We thank you for leading us, guiding us, for bringing us truth. Even though the process is difficult, we know it is worth it. And it is only by the grace of Jesus that we can get through it. So Lord, we pray for boldness, we pray for courage, we pray for confidence, we pray for honesty as we assess ourselves and as we seek to empower uh, the world to be able to declare the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. At the end of the service, there's always an opportunity for you to be prayed for. And the prayer team is going to be joining us uh, at the front very soon. If there's anything on your heart or your mind, whether it's for yourself, whether you want prayer on behalf of another person, please, we invite you. Uh, the people will be here. The opportunity is available for you to be prayed for and to pray with someone. As we close the service, the benediction I leave you with comes from Romans chapter 15, verse 5 to 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You may go in peace to love and serve the Lord.